0: 日本史
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. Uh, Today we have a full plate of Heian goodness for you. Uh, This is Chris, I'm here with the full party. We have Joseph, Nate, and Travis. Hello. Say hello, Joseph. Hey. (laughs) All right, and uh, so, without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and delve into the Heian period. All right, so to begin, the Heian period uh, follows the
0: Nara period, and it it began in 794 and stretched for uh, over uh, a little less than 400 years uh, until 1185 or 1192, depending on who you read. Uh, 1185 being the end of the Genpei Wars, uh, when we see power fall firmly into the hands of the Minamoto, or 1192 when uh, Yoritomo is, is... Uh, ...granted the title of of Shogun. Yeah, Sei Tai Shogun to uh, establish
2: the uh, Kamakura Bakufu.
0: Yes, and so 794 until the end of the 12th century. And the Heian period, being so long, is often broken into three partitions, three divisions. We have early, when we see heavy influence of Chinese culture and administrative patterns. Middle, when we have the Sessho and Kampaku regents and advisors controlling government... And uh, alongside that, we see the burgeoning native Japanese culture, poetry, and literature flourishing. And in the late Heian, the Insei cloistered emperors begin to uh, dominate, government. dominate government and the rise of the Bushi. And this, this uh, signals our entrance into classical, uh, I'm sorry, our uh, exit from classical Japan. Um, so just to, to summarize the end of the Nara period, since it's been a week, Uh, 784, Kamu uh, had the Nagaoka capital erected to replace the the Nara capital of Heijo. The Nagaoka capital measured 4 kilometers by 5 kilometers. The emperor of the time, Kamu, in 784 uh, erects Nagaoka. Uh, Within 10 years, Nagaoka suffered damage from two floods, and so Kamu then moves the capital from Nagaoka to Heian, or Kyoto. Now Heian measured 4.5 kilometers by 5.2 kilometers, making it slightly larger than the previous uh, capital Nagaoka. And now, Kamu's, his move from Nagoka to, well, actually his move from, from Heijo to Heian, so we see a 10-month, I'm sorry, a 10-year pit stop in Nagoka. There, it's, it's a very symbolic move. I'll begin by briefly describing Kamu's approach to his own rule. He apparently believed that his rule signified a break from the past, and why this is, is that after the Jinshin the War, the jinshin no between, <clears throat> if you remember, Tenmu came out victorious in, I believe, 672, that establishes the Temmu line. And that's. Temmu was the brother of, of Tenchi. And that establishes the Temu line of, of rulers. And we see Temu, and then he, and then his son, then Momu, Seimu, uh, Koken, and Shotoku. Uh, kouken and Shotoku being the same person. This is, sees the end of the Temu line. So the Temu line, uh, and we mentioned in the previous podcast the, the work by Herman Ohms. Right. Uh, Herman Ooms covers Symbolics in this period And covers the, the, the Temmu court And so refer to our last podcast For more information on that But the Temmu line ends with Koken Slash Shotoku being the same person We then see the line switching back To the Tenshi line uh, Tenshi's grandson Koonin. Now Kounin now takes the throne His sonic successor is Kammu So Kammu And, and Koonin are a return To the Tenshi line there's, a, there, and there's an argument over legitimacy. Is Temu legitimate? Is Tenchi legitimate? Now, Kamu is not only the, the second emperor since the line switched back to Tenchi, but he was also his mother had Pekche blood. So, his father being Konin, he was, he was half Japanese. It's not an appropriate term, but half Japanese. And his mother was the uh, Takano no Nigasa. Now, she had Pekche blood. She was a noble uh, Pekche family. She was said to be the princess of the Yamato clan of scribes of foreign birth. Now they are they're they're said to have descended from a son, being Prince Junta, of King Muryong or Bune in Japanese, of Pekche, from the early sixth century. Now Prince Junta is recorded in the Shoku Nihongi as having died in Japan in five fourteen. So we have a, a Pekche prince dying in Japan, and this Yamato clan of scribes, out of which Takanonigasa no was born, would then have been a foreign clan based in Japan for over two hundred years before providing a consort to the emperor. Uh, so, at that by this point, then they're not really foreign. But even at this point, for example, if you look at registries at the time, it was it was recorded very carefully. We know that the, for example, the um, the Hata, the Yamato, and, and many other the, the Soga clans with foreign affiliation, clans of foreign blood, that was that was recorded, and so. To an extent, there was not a full uh, merging, and, and Herman Ohms talked about this as well with the alakthons, his terminology for immigrants. He prefers the word alakthons, meaning of different dirt or of different land, to immigrants because the
3: word immigrant implies a modern idea of a nation state or a customs My, agent yeah. or a passport. But mm. even if they were there for many generations, um, they still had like a separate Kabane title that was more or less just for immigrants.
0: And so with this, we see uh, we see Kamu. The, basically the, the importance of, of his rule. He's, he's not only um, the second emperor after the line returns to Tenchi, but he, it's interesting to look at his pedigree as well. Now, Kamu focused on, on military conquest to expand imperial lands and the building of new capitals. So if you look in, in general histories of Japan, he's war and, and, and construction. So expand land and build new capitals. These military conquests involved battles fought against the Tohoku or the northeastern Japan Imushi, and we see that campaign carried out over three major battles.
2: Okay, so as Joseph talked about, uh, one of the goals of the court at this time was to expand their their power throughout the uh, Japanese archipelago. Part of this was especially to increase their land to the uh, east and north, especially uh, pushing the Imishi, as they're called, or the uh, as we talked about in previous co- podcasts, these were the Jomon,
1: yes, the descendants, uh, descendants
2: and the uh, predecessors of the Ainu, right? Who do, who did not uh, recognize the central government's rule. Although this term um, also does does evolve to basically describe anyone who's not under Yamato control as well. Sure. It does evolve, sure, sure. <laughs> sure. And, and it's important to note at this time that it's not just it's not simply a, an, an, an ethnic division. Um, it's there were uh, Yayoi-descendant Japanese who chose to move to these areas because they did not want to be under Yamato control. They're rolled up into this. Uh, there were Jomon peoples who did fall under Yamato control, and they are not. It, it's So it, it's not simply an, an us versus them. A There's us and, and there's the other. It's, it's, it's not quite as clear as all that. However, the group that resisted Yamato control uh, can collectively be, be called the, the Emishi. And uh, so by 720, in the, uh, the Nara period, the, uh, the, the border, essentially, of Yamato control was at uh, Sendai. There was a uh, settlement at uh, Taga near Sendai that was essentially the limit of advance at that point. And as we mentioned before,
0: Sendai also marks the... The highest point for the Zenpo and Funkyo-shaped tombs, and also the uh, right. the provincial temple system under Shomu.
2: Right, so so essentially um, the Yamato ha, uh, clan, the, the imperial family, had established control of the Kanto area, uh, which is important because that's the most productive rice-growing area in all of Japan. And horses uh, was the, uh, the development of a, uh, a horse culture that's, that was the most productive area for uh, raising horses as well. Over the next 80 years, they continued to push up uh, until they had pretty much isolated the anishi in the northernmost reaches of Tohoku and uh, up into Hokkaido. Uh, Joseph mentioned the uh, the three battles uh, that uh, that that took place. A couple of them, I don't want to say indecisive, but were decisive in the wrong way. In 789, the uh, imperial army was destroyed, defeated very badly by uh, an Amishi force, and this kind of showed how uh, inefficient and inept the, uh, the the Taiho military system was. Uh, and why around this time is when uh, Emperor Kamu abolishes the... Essentially what they had was a draft where certain segments of the population were, were drafted into the military to serve around the country. Kamu uh, abolishes this because it, it doesn't work the burden on those who were drafted was too great that they had a real problem actually getting the people that had been drafted to serve. There's also many cases of absconding. Right, right. So Kamu drops this and places um, local governors he makes them responsible for, for raising troops locally uh, for defense and uh, policing activity. Uh, and we'll, we'll cover this in greater detail in, a, in a later podcasts as we kind of chart the, uh, the rise of the warrior class, so to speak. But um, this is where that sort of... Uh, one of the reasons, anyway, that that sort of begins. Okay, so in 791, uh, the court appoints a commander and gives him the title of Seito Taishi, or Envoy for the Pacification of the East. Uh, they also appoint a deputy to him, uh, whose name is Sakuno Tamuramaro. Tamura Maro, and uh, they deploy to the front and defeat the uh, Emishi in 794, uh, move the line up further north of, of uh, demarcation, and come back uh, in 795 to into the capital in triumph. A few years later, uh, Tamura Moro is uh, appointed the commander of the next expedition and is sent up north, and this is where the Amishi finally get pushed back uh, to the far northern reaches of Tohoku, Tamanomoto is given the title of Sei Tai Shogun, uh, which uh, is often translated as Barbarian Subduing Generalissimo. Uh, if I really like the isimo on the end there, that makes it <laughs> that makes it sound so isimo. fantastic. Um, but anyway, this is the first appearance of the title of Sei Tai Shogun, which, of course, as you know, is the uh, title appropriated by the Minamoto to. Uh, for for their uh, government and uh, the purposes, and then, and, and then and the subsequently, yes, the Ashikaga yeah. and, and the Tokugawa. Anyway, this is this in, in 801. They finally defeat the uh, Emishi at least to their satisfaction, and, and that kind of holds position for the next uh, several hundred years. However, this this creates problems because uh, with the abolishment of the uh, the draft system of soldiers pr- soldier procurement, really. Now they have, they're relying on local landholders to generate their own private militaries uh, to do work on behalf of the government. So this really is, is the beginning of the shift to local warrior bands forming mm. under the, the leadership of local landholders, local strongmen, and really takes the military power completely away from the court, as we will get into later on. And uh, Kamu's projects, both
0: military and, and and constructive, as in the expedition against the Emishi and the construction of the Heian capital, had taken a large bite out of the coffers. After he passes away, uh, with the next emperor is Emperor Heize, who sets to cut government spending in order to bolster the national finances. Um, sickness, unfortunately, forces him to abdicate in favor of Emperor Saga. Now... Uh, what I'd like to mention now at this point about Emperor Kamu and Saga is it's at this point we see the Ritsuryo system really falling into arrears, antiquated it, it's it's falling apart and it's weak this is when we see concerted efforts to rectify it and strengthen the government specifically um, end of the 8th century uh, first half of the 9th century and under under um, Kamu and Saga as I mentioned we see the creating of extra Ritsuryo official posts so government posts that are not found in the ritsuryo codes, such as um, there's the Kageyushi under, under uh, Kamu, the uh, kuro do dokoro and the Kebishi under Saga. Now, the Kageyushi examined the inheritance papers between the provincial Kokushi governors, and we'll talk more about, about them um, coming up when we talk about the establishment of the Bushi. But next we see the kuro do dokoro They were the communicators between the emperor and the officials. And lastly, um, of mention of these three is the Kebishi. And they handled um, security, or, or they were basically the—they function as the capital police. And 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 lastly, in, in 802, we see a very important series of revisions to the the contemporaneous legal system, the Kōnin Kyakushiki. Now, this, this revised the c- contemporary legal system to enable it to run smoothly. So it's it's we see the convergence between the Kamu abolishing the conscription system, and also under Congo and Saga, we see emperors take initiative to rectify the, the failing dco uh, based government.
2: Yeah, and one of the things that um, I, I think it's important to note in, in this is, this is really recognition that through the, the end of the Asuka and in the Nara period, they were importing these Chinese... Formats of government, uh, where you know they were they were basing uh, you know the the system the ritsudai system that they came up with uh, through the Taika and the Taiho reforms that they were they were importing they were trying to establish uh, their government based on the model of of the Tang Dynasty in China,
3: and uh, and this is really I think the great symbol of that the most visible symbol of that is the way that the capital is organized right and just.
2: And 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 how it develops. What we're what we're seeing though with with Kamu and then and then Saga and these extra government officials uh, and uh, posts and uh, organizations being developed is that is the recognition that the Chinese model doesn't work for Japan. Right. Mm-hmm. That because of for various reasons, um, which I think it's important to explore they cannot just simply take what they see in uh, going on in changan in the capital of the tang dynasty and apply it to heian kyo part of that is because japan did not historically they they were not able to effectively I- revise their government into a meritocracy which is what mm-hmm. you see at least ideally in china where you know yeah. officials yeah are taught, you know, they, they, they go through schools, they have to learn certain things, be it, you know, Chinese history, poetry, etc., etc., and then are assigned positions based on the results of the examinations. So it's and like it, a civil
1: service exam or something. Right, yeah. and, right. That's, and that's that's
3: the... Theory. Go ahead. And, and in theory, and in theory, anybody, even the lowest peasant, can apply and take the exam and do well on it. Right. Of course, peasants, right. most peasants can't read, so they can't study to begin with, but in theory, anybody. In, in, in theory, theory and, as long as you can do, do well, yes, it is, it is
2: based on you know, your your merit in the Chinese system, mm-hmm. where it is in this does not translate well to Japanese society, which is pedigree based. Yes, it's pedigree based. It's based on heredity. You know, you come from a certain family, and therefore you are eligible for certain posts. And now. Part of the importance of, uh, especially during the early Han uh, period, we see that uh, Chinese that knowledge of Chinese, knowledge of Chinese history, knowledge of Chinese poetry, uh, Chinese classical texts, is important and a requirement for these posts. But the people who are who have the exposure to this sort of education are also the people whose families are in position to. Be assigned to these posts anyway. Uh, members of the Fujiwara and uh, other uh, important clans at this time, uh, the uh, Miyoshi, the Sugawara, etc. So it's it's as much or more based on who you descend from and what your standing is, uh, what the standing of your family is, than it is you know a pure meritocracy based system. And, and so this this really is the reason why all these extra measures have to be taken because it creates a lot of need for workarounds to fit this into the Japanese context. You can't... In a meritocracy, you're given your position because of your educational status, and you're given your position because the government says you have met this certain standard. In Japan's system, you have your position because of your family, not because of what the imperial court gives you. So your primary loyalty isn't to the government system that's given you your position, your primary loyalty is to your family. So I, we'll see this later on where, you know, different families, especially the Fujiwara, use the imperial court as a tool to enrich themselves. But this is, this is again, this is why the, the Chinese model does not fit mm-hmm. uh, and has to be amended and some parts of it abandoned and some parts of it simply just don't work. And, and Nate's mention now
0: of, of aristocrats. Um, I think this is a good time to mention. There's a changing of the guard between... Uh, with, with the move of the capital from, from Hejo to Heian, we see a changing of the guard between the old pre-Heian powerful families we mentioned in the previous podcast, who uh, were local strongmen, local leaders of, of independent kingdoms, who signified their inclusion into the Yamato polity but through the building of keyhole shaped tombs. They then gathered in the, in, in the Nara Basin... Basically, when the government begins to centralize, they establish bases of power in Hejo. But with the move from Hajo to Heian, we see a change from these old pre-Nara powerful families to a new set of aristocrats. So by transferring the capital away from Hajo and eventually to Heian, these powerful Gozoku, or powerful pre-Nara families, who had their base of operations stationed in Hejo were now out of the loop. Instead, we have children of the emperor, case in point, Kamu's many children through many consorts, they begin to hold surnames and become ordinary nobles, no longer elevated as, as sons of the emperor. They're now noble, uh, ordinary nobles. For example, worth mentioning at this point is um, a son of Emperor Saga, um, who takes the the name Minamoto. His descendants are known as the Saga Genji, the um, the Ariwara family. Ariwara be, not, Narihira is the main character of the famous Ise Monogatari, which we'll talk about as well. Even
3: though he's not actually named in it, but everybody thinks that everybody says that he's the main guy.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And the Ariwara family are, are descended from Heize. Kamu's children become the Taira. And the, the Seiwa Genji, who Yoritomo and Yoshitsune belong to, are from Seiwa Tenno, the Emperor Seiwa. And so we see a, a new emergent set of aristocrats. And it's at this time that the Fujiwara clan really um, becomes especially intertwined with the imperial family.
3: And, and in moving away from Heijo to Heian, they're not just moving away from old aristocratic families that were powerful there, but also away from the temples that were powerful there. Yes. And so yeah, and Emperor kammu is trying to establish his, his own sort of strength and I guess the court's power, or in any case, just t- to get away from the very strong political influence of Nara based temples. Right. Like uh, you know, horyuji and, and Todaiji and
0: whatever. Right. So it's about from this time that we'll enter the uh the middle Heian, and the, the Fujiwara clan becomes especially intertwined with the imperial family. So if you remember, the Fujiwara clan is actually the ancient Nakatomi clan, Nakatomi no Kamatari being the co-conspirator of Nakano no Oji, or uh, Emperor Tenchi, who assassinated Soga no Iruka in 645, and uh, basically ended the Soga control of, of the government. Now, Before passing away, Emperor Emperor Tenchi awards Nagatomi no Kamatari the surname Fujiwara, and that begins the the Fujiwara line. So pertaining specifically to the the Heian period, Fujiwara no Fujito has four main sons. Four sons, they found the four houses of the Fujiwara, one of which was the Fujiwara Hokke, or the northern house of Fujiwara. But this is not to be confused with the northern Fujiwara, uh, who flourished in the late Heian at Hiraizumi, and they are called the Oshu Fujiwara. Right. So we have the northern Fujiwara, and then we have the, the northern house of Fujiwara in the capital. Right, so you th- right. don't want to get those confused. North,
2: so. Northern as defined by they were on, lived on the north side of... As in in Tōgu. Well, no, no. But the, the, when you hear the northern Fujiwara, mm-hmm. like the Hokke, that, right. that refers to be, they lived on the northern side of as
3: opposed right. to the Oshu I Fujiwara who lived in Oshu, who lived far to the north in the <laughs> yeah. Tohoku region. Right, I always thought those were the same thing. I'm really glad that we've covered that. <laughs> and, and actually, of interest, I think we've actually mentioned this in a previous
0: podcast. Apparently, the Oshu Fujiwara, they did. Um, I think we should go in a little bit into the culture of Hiraizumi, but the they had they had a very strong base of operations in in the Tohoku, this uh, northern Fujiwara. Now. They did...
2: Um, at Hiraizumi, which at is Hiraizumi. where that comes from, yes.
0: And now they, they did uh, an examination of, of the remains of, of members of this northern Fujiwara, and they apparently um, were not of, of Emishi stock, as long believed. They were actually... Um,
1: looked like they were from Kyoto. Yeah, I don't know if we actually covered that. I know I did read it. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a mummy, actually. Well, yeah. Mummified the remains. The main,
3: the main leaders of the ocean Fujiwara are mummified inside Chusonji, in, in Hiraizumi, hmm. which miraculously survived the tsunami earlier this year, more or less perfectly intact. So I would assume that that's where they got it from. It's, it's wonderful to have access to DNA yes. <laughs> from these wonderful... Um, right. I think, if I remember correctly, there's um, three leaders of the Oshifuchi yes. who are modified there, plus a head of a fourth person, <laughs> the rest of his body is buried somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I remember we the, when I was looking at the, uh, the bone studies and all that, mm-hmm. they... Uh, they were finding a lot of the people who, who were said to be emishi were actually of the Yayoi stock, or, or right. sort of in between.
0: And why this becomes an issue is that the northern Fujiwara, or the Oshu Fujiwara, claimed that they were, they were emishi, we are of, this, of these people. That, that, that then, but then with this finding that they're actually of, of standard Kyoto stock, what does the term emishi then mean? So emishi was not only, was not only ethnic... But it was also a term for a group of people. And so, right. um, and, and we did mention that when we talked about the uh, Kamu's expeditions against the. Against We're basically the
1: outside the realm of control of the Exactly. Government. Right.
0: Okay. Now, and so uh, uh, from this oh, Fujiwara Hokke, uh,
3: Fujiwara no Kiyohira is buried there. Along with his son Motohira and his grandson Hidehira, hmm. and the head of his great grandson Yasuhira, who was decapitated by Yoritomo's forces um, when they destroyed Hiraizumi in 1189. And that's from what book? Penelope Mason's wonderful history of Japanese art. Where'd you get that book? Uh, it, was, it was an assigned book for me for my survey of Japanese art. But it's actually it's a really good book for history and not just for art history.
0: Yeah, Penelope Mason's book is a fantastic, it's an excellent survey. Book. And so from this Fujiwara Hokke, the, the northern house of Fujiwara, comes Fujiwara no Fuyutsugu. Now Fujiwara no Fuyutsugu ingratiates himself with Emperor Saga. And um, if you remember, Emperor Saga established several of the extra ritsurio official posts and worked to strengthen the government. Now Emperor Saga, so Fujiwara Fuyutsugu ingratiates himself with Emperor Saga. He then marries his daughter Junshi to Emperor Nimmyo. Now their son... Um, thus being Fujiwara no Fuyutsugu's grandson, becomes Emperor Montoku in the 850s. So Fujiwara Fuyutsugu's grandson becomes an emperor. Now, this is very important. This makes Fuyutsugu a relative, albeit a maternal relative, of the imperial family. And so, um, a, a, sli- a slight segue. The, um, the tenmon or the Oten Gate, uh, was the main gate of the Chodoin, which is the center of the government affairs and ceremony in the imperial palace in Kyoto. And in 866, this gate was set on fire. Mm -hmm. And what unfolds now is a a he says, in this case, a he says, he says, in which uh, the Dynagon, or Chief Counselor of State, Tomo no Yoshio, blames the minister of the left, Minamoto no Makoto. He says, you are the arsonist. Thanks to the intervention of the Grand Minister, Fujiwara no Yoshifusa, Minamoto no Makoto is let off the hook and declared innocent. Now, several months later, a secret informer comes forward, claiming that the arsonists, the arsonists were actually Tomo no Yoshio and his son. And if you remember, they were the ones who blamed Minamoto no Makoto. Now, found guilty, Tomo no Yoshio is exiled to Izu. Mm-hmm. So, why have I explained this? On the one hand, we see the collapse of the Ootomo family in the form of, of Tomo no Yoshio being exiled. The Ōtomo family, mentioned in a previous podcast, was one of the most powerful Uji. ...from the the late uh, Kofun period. So the Ōtomo family now collapses. And on the other hand, we see a great deal of power fall into the hands of of the Fujiwara... ...who becomes the the sessho, or the regent, of Emperor Seiwa. Now, Emperor Seiwa... ...and the Fujiwara at this time act on behalf of Emperor Seiwa to to really clean up this event. So they really, not only do they uh, become ingratiated with the emperors... ...do they start sending daughters in as consorts and wives thus producing emperors themselves, but they also are acting on behalf um, of the emperor in, in the administration. And this unfolds in a famous hand scroll of the Heian period.
3: Oh, Right, and so the whole story is, is related in the bon Dinagon um, Eikotoba, mm-hmm. which is a national treasure and one of the more famous Emaki hand scroll paintings of the Heian period, um, which is particularly known for the development or the emergence of hand scroll paintings.
0: Um, And that's from what the late 12th century, I believe. Yes, late 12th century. Yes. So several hundred years after the event, but nevertheless,
3: true. Yeah, most of these really famous emaki are actually from the very, very end of the uh, very end of the Heian period or the early Kamakura period. But nevertheless, sort of a a natural evolution of Heian period art, and often depicting major uh, depicting major Heian period events. So in any case, Bondanagon Eikotoba is attributed to a painter named Tokiwa no Mitsunaga, and it's often cited as a particularly um, good example of the narrative technique of Ichiji Dozu, or at one time in the same picture. Um, And so one thing that shows up a lot in Emaki, in hand-scroll paintings, and especially in Bain Danagon, is that you see the same characters in basically the same space, and you're supposed to understand that it's sequential. There's a time progression there. What's um, the? What's the? So this is something that was incredibly uh, innovative um, when Todd McFarlane did it in Spider Man in the 1980s, but um, Tokiwa Mitsunaga was doing it in the 12th century. Oh, gee, So yes. What was?
0: What's the painting of the woman in supplication before the Buddha statue, and she is all over the place? It's an example of of, of the. Oh people.
3: yeah, um, I think that that's worth mentioning at this point. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Engi, I do now, and I don't remember She the name appears multiple times praying before the statue. Mm-hmm. Probably. In any case, another, as Joseph has pointed out, another very good example of this um, Ichiji Dozu technique is in um, another hand scroll, which features a nun searching for her brother who goes and prays before the great Buddha um, Atodaiji in Nara. And there's um, a great scene, one, one section of the hand scroll, showing her in many different places around the same... One representation of the Buddha statue, sort of representing that she kept moving, praying in one spot one night, and sort of sleeping, and, and all these kinds of things, while the Buddha obviously stayed stationary, um, and it sort of shows narrative.
1: Okay, so this makes sense because when I went to the uh, when I went to the AAS conference with uh, Nate here, I, I went to uh, one of the one of the ones I went to was basically uh, food culture, and they right. had this big long presentation on a particular scroll that was portraying a party, basically, Mm -hmm. and it shows the whole building and it shows the characters in different places, in different rooms, different places, but it's as if it's one single picture. So I guess this is then representing them going from place to place, even though it's only showing one. Was this a Chinese painting? No, it was Japanese. There's a very famous Chinese painting um, of a
3: party that does the same thing. could very easily that. fit into a food culture thing.
1: Uh, this night. is actually mentioned in the podcast where I talked about it way back when we were doing our AAS podcast. So if anyone's curious, you can go back in back to in the uh, one of our early uh, one of our first podcasts. I don't know, Rebels of Han Suje, I think. Hmm. If anybody wants to look up things about
3: Chinese paintings. Hi, my name is Daniel O'Grady, and I'm the creator of the Japanese Castle Explorer website. And if you find yourself on the internet with some moments to spare, I recommend you come and have a look. There's information, pictures and maps of over 130 of Japan's castles. To find us, just enter Japanese Castle Explorer into your favorite search engine. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so come and say hi. See ya!
1: It was the best of times... It was the BEST OF TIMES!
2: Brick McMurley is... Maeda Keiji,
1: Sengoku Stud! Coming soon to DVD and Blu-Ray! Hey kids, it's your old pal the Brickster! After you plucked down your lunch money picking up my newest classic... Make sure to check us out at www.brickmcburly.com. And hey, bring your mom while you're at it.
2: Hey, this is Sawaguchi Yasuko, and you're listening to the Samurai Archives Podcast. So, as I said, um, collapse of the
0: Otomo family, the ancient Otomo family, and the rise really of, of the Fujiwara, in, the, in this case Fujiwara no Yoshifusa, who is the Sessho or regent of Emperor of Emperor Seiwa. Now, a question that can be asked here, it's, I think it's a very salient point, is Is, is Tomono Yoshio really the, the victim, the criminal here? Did Tomono
3: Yoshio burn down the gate for his own. I mean, yeah, did, did he even do it himself? Did he do it for political reasons? or Or is this all part of a Fujiwara scheme to to do exactly what ended up happening to to, to destroy the Otomo family and ingratiate Secure. themselves, the Fujiwara family with the, the real court
2: what, Was it a power play by the Fujiwara to, to set all this in motion or was it something fortunate. that simply happened and they're the beneficiaries of it Exactly, yeah,
3: I'm, it, and I'm not sure if we have an answer but it, it seems uh, mm-hmm. like um, a happy it stands, coincidence It stands out to me that there's a strong possibility for either one
0: Sure and so, and so out of this, we, uh, we see the beginning of what's called the Sekkan Seiji, or the Sessho kanpaku Seiji, meaning the uh, rule by regents and advisors. And this is a form of government that begins in the middle Heian period and really describes rule by, by Fujiwara. In this case, regent or Sessho being an advisor to a, a child ruler. So out of this, we really see the evolution of, of Sekkan Seiji, or Sessho kanpaku Seiji, which means politics or rule of government, um, by a sessho or a kanpaku, um, respectively a regent or an advisor. In this case, the sessho or the regent refers to um, a...
2: It's, it's someone who, uh, an official who was designated as the, as ruling, uh, making decisions in the name of a child an, a child emperor. Uh, And then the the kampaku, or advisor, was an advisor who essentially performed the same functions. Mm -hmm. However, the emperor was of age. It was simply delegated, the the emperor's authority was delegated to the kampaku. In some works, you'll see regent used for both of these. Uh, Others, you you can see it regent is for the the minor uh, and kampaku, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, advisor uh, for the, uh, you know, the stand-in for the adult. And now, this
0: these uh, the regents or advisors as as a post did exist prior to the the middle Heian period. But really, Fujiwara no Michinaga, who was from lived in the 10th to 11th centuries, really can be called I guess you could say the father of this uh, of this system of government. He was uh, not only minister of the right, but also minister of the left. In addition to being uh, a senseiokampaku, there was also another government post that he held. But Fujiwara no Michinaga held sway over the political world for over two decades, and now he's known for marrying four daughters to successive emperors. So you can really see the, the extent of, of his control. And um, interestingly, not only does his bio give us a chance to talk about the regent advisor style of government, but it also segues into another important middle hand figure that being Murasaki Shikibu. Now, Murasaki Shikibu was a tutor and aide to Empress. Uh, Shoshi, who is the, the daughter of Michinaga, so Fujiwara no Michinaga's daughter becomes the Empress Shoshi, the Empress of uh, Emperor Ichijō, and this is at the end of the 10th century, early 11th century, and so Murasaki Shikibu is known for the Tale of the Genji or the Genji Monogatari, mm-hmm. and so out of this of this uh, uh, second Seiji, out of the, this uh, Kampaku sessho regent advisor paradigm. And out and f- we see uh, Fujiwara ingratiating himself with the government. We see Fujiwara control at the height of this is, is Fujiwara no Michinaga, and and it gives us a chance to talk about Murasaki Shikibu. Who and I'll recap this again is tutor and aide to Emperor Shoshi, who is the daughter of Michinaga. And what's important about this is Michinaga, out of his four daughters, one of them was married to to Emperor Ichijo. And if you if you do get a chance to read the Genji Monogatari, I believe that you will um, you'll. Uh,
3: fall asleep <laughs> you, you can see a lot of important uh, historical figures well anyway it
2: it's 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 important as a source of giving it you well it gives us the feel for the court life at, at the right. time um, you know it is a work of fiction so to speak but the uh, there is speculation that the protagonist of the story Prince Genji Uh, is loosely based on Michinaga himself, Mm -hmm. and it it really, while the specific events in there are not factual, it really gives it a good eyewitness feel uh, for life at the Han court at the turn of the 11th century. Right. So we've touched upon how Fujiwara and Michinaga is a very
3: significant figure in cultural history because of his connection to Murasaki Shikibu um, and to Han period literature. He's also a very... um, very important figure in cultural history, in art, in art history, as, as a, as a taste-setter, particularly when it comes to architectural history, architecture. Michinaga and other members of the Fujiwara family at, were at this time right around right around the turn of the 11th century responsible for creating um, the architectural form that is known as Shinden Zukuri, which is still seen today in the Phoenix Hall at the Byodolin, is probably the most famous, and I think more or less the only, mm-hmm. remaining extant example of it. And and this particular style of arranging an aristocratic mansion ends up um, remaining extremely influential in in architectural history, particularly in Heian and late Heian, but sort of onwards throughout Japanese history. So uh, in in the year 1019, uh, Michinaga began construction on the now-destroyed Hojoji Temple, um, which he intended to be the site of his retirement. And that was one of the main... Major examples of Shinden-zukuri style, in which the main buildings of a of a mansion are arranged around a pond and a garden, and then there are other buildings sort of placed around it, particularly to the north.
1: So the pond or the garden is like the focal point of the whole complex. Exactly. Okay. Well, that makes sense with the the Byodulin. It's kind of in the the center of the whole. Mm-hmm. Even the reproduction here in uh, Hawaii is the same.
2: Yeah, side. I was actually going to bring up exactly the, the fact that if, if for any listeners who are here in Hawaii, they have a, a reproduction of it over, isn't
1: it over on the uh, sort of like, like the Kona
2: side, Kona side?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. side, yeah. And it also should be noted that it's it's actually made of one hundred percent concrete. There's, there's no wood. Right. Yeah, It's, it's it, really interesting to look at the Hawaiian version, which looks as if it's like the brand new one with really
3: bright Vermilion mm-hmm. paint, and then go see the the original one, which I basically did within the course of a couple months. Yeah. And the original one, which is kind of, it, it has a wonderful wabi-sabi kind of feel to it.
1: It has a very sort of, it feels old.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I like the, uh, I've been to both too, and I was actually really shocked when I came back to the uh, Hawaiian one and realized, you know, that it was all concrete. Because from a distance, it doesn't look concrete. Although the statue inside, in the Hawaiian
3: reproduction, is a real wooden, gilded wooden statue. Hmm. um, And it's the largest Japanese Buddhist statue to be made using traditional methods in uh, a very, very, very long time. I don't Mm -hmm. remember the... I have it written down. Interesting. Somewhere. But, um, yes, that one... That at least is authentic.
1: The concrete is... It's, it's kind of a, it's a little uh, disturbing when yeah. you, you knock on the wall and it's the, just the, solid concrete.
2: But Yes, but let, let's keep in mind that's just as authentic as the ferro concrete reconstructions of, of the single freaking castle, so yeah. castle exactly. in Japan outside of Himiyama <clears throat> and Himeji. So Michinaga built
3: this Hojoji to be his retirement palace, and um, you can still go and see, as I did, um, the little stone marker just east of the current Imperial Palace where it used to stand. Uh, in 1027, he was, he, had a, he was in his deathbed, on his deathbed, in the uh, Amida Hall in Hojoji, where he held two golden strings that were attached to a painting of Amida, um, so that just as he died, Amida could pull
2: him into the, um, into the Pure Land. When you say just to the east of, of the Imperial Palace, you mean in, in Kyoto. Kyoto? In Kyoto. But not, not the Imperial Palace in Tokyo
3: right now. No. Right, in Kyoto. Okay. The one that, that has been moved since it was
2: first built in, 1794, in 794. Okay. Just wanted to make sure yes. that yes. he wasn't like building yeah. his retirement villa in the Kanto area. Absolutely. I'm not sure.
3: And later, the, the Hojoji was destroyed in, by fire in 1058 and was never rebuilt. But meanwhile, Michinaga's son, Yuri Michi, in 1052-1053... On a, a separate set of land in Uji, a little distance from Kyoto, which is also Fujiwara land, Fuji, Fujiwara had a lot of land. Um, built the the now very famous Phoenix Hall at Byodoin, which is also just a very very good example of shinden style architecture, and it's and this I guess probably much they're both Amida halls are both dedicated to the, Bodhis, the Bodhisattva the Buddha of the Western Paradise, and both Hojoji and are meant to sort of represent uh, in some sort of metaphorical or symbolic kind of way the western paradise itself so you can see Amida inside the, the phoenix hall looking out over the pond so it's, it's, it, it's a temple today but, um, but it's very representative of this aristocratic mansion um, style that was incredibly important at the time and
2: we've already touched on uh, a, a little bit with uh, the Genji Monogatari the, uh, the, the topic of literature uh, and the Han is really when uh, literature begins to flourish in Japan. I, w- I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about the development of uh, literature and how it develops over the course of the Han period. The Manyoshu, uh, as we talked about before, was a, a collection of uh, Japanese poems from the earliest times up until around 760, uh, which is when it was compiled and published. The Manyoshi was written using Chinese script to represent the Japanese, Japanese phonetics, so it w- they were Japanese language poems though. With the influx of the heavy Chinese influence, Chinese poetry becomes popular. And, and as we talked about uh, with the necessity for education and learning to take government posts, it becomes very popular to study Chinese, to study Chinese poets, to be able to compose Chinese poetry. And these are one of the qualifications for being uh, considered educated enough to hold court positions. In uh, Emperor Saga... Uh, actually, commands uh, in the beginning of the uh, the eight hundreds that several uh, poetry anthologies be put together. These are poems by Japanese poets that are composed in Chinese as the educational language of the day. So much like in Europe, you had you know, people learning Latin at the time; they were they were learning Chinese. Uh, so we have the Unshu in eight fifteen, uh, the Bunka Shu in eight eighteen. And the Keikokushu in 827, uh, and for basically a period of 100 years, we have Chinese being the, the language of education. It, it's interesting because we we see it takes about 100 years before Japanese to come back into vogue. As we talked about uh, moving into the middle uh, of the Heian period, there's uh, there's kind of a uh, rejection, not not so much a rejection as a, as a moving away of the China, from the, the emphasis on Chinese culture. Part of this is political. We see the the fall of the uh, the Tang Dynasty around the year 900, and so the example that the the Heian court has had of how to uh, put together a government kind of falls away. With this, they also kind of pull away from Chinese culture as their emphasis, and so we see a return to Japanese poetry. What really makes this possible, though, is the development of the Kana syllabary, uh, hiragana and katakana, and as a way to write and capture the Japanese language in a Japanese manner without having to rely on uh, Chinese characters like they did in the past. And um, this comes around to, in 1922, we have the publication of the Kokinshu, which is another collection of poetry, but importantly, it's a collection of Japanese poetry, Poetry in Japanese, not in Chinese, and it's written in in in, in Kana, in hiragana, uh, and specifically their waka. Right. So uh, we have the development of the the Japanese the waka the the the, the poem uh, the 57577 um, uh, five, 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 seven, seven format is the the tanka. I believe it's the shorter I think so. format. And then waka is essentially building blocks of these tanka mm-hmm. uh, into I mean, longer I mean, lines. Mean, I mean, yes, means. it's 57577. Uh, five, seven, five, seven, seven. Uh, later on, this will develop into haiku in the 575 format. But the building block of, of Japanese poetry at this time is the tanka, the 57577, five, seven, seven, which in these... Uh, At at the court, what they would do is they would have these poetry writing contests where you would have um, somebody would write the 57577 of one poem, and then the next person had to tie their next poem into the last two lines of, of the previous poem. Um, a very popular court pastime, right? Often, often accompanied by lots of
3: drinking, I'm sure.
2: Yes. Well, you need to write better poetry while drinking. I mean, obviously. I mean, of if course, Wang
3: can do it at the Orchid okay. Pavilion. Then there you, you go. We need to. There do you go.
2: That. Continuing on, though, with the the development of the Japanese writing script, and the, this sees an explosion of Japanese literature uh, literature in the Japanese language because now they have a way to. To write it, Chinese was still used uh, for official documents, for government texts, and and so forth. Um, but through the 900s, leading up to uh, around the year 1000, when the Tale of Genji was being compiled, you have in in the 900s we have, we also see the Taketori uh, Monogatari, or the Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, uh, the Ise Monogatari, which uh, Joseph referenced earlier, and all these different literary works coming to the to the surface, being written. And uh, culminating in the in the uh, Genji Monogatari by uh, Murasaki Shikibu and the uh, Makuro no Soshi or uh, the Pillow Book by uh, Sei Shonagon, who were, were both uh, we already talked about uh, uh, Murasaki Shikibu, but uh, Sei Shonagon was another was a contemporary who was also at court uh,
1: and uh, wrote her work uh, based about the life of the court. Um, yeah, and so kind of looking at the different things, uh, these different uh, classical writings, I wanted to mention you did mention the Taketori Monogatari which is almost a, uh, like the first science fiction novel. You have the, the moon princess <laughs> comes down from the moon uh, just kind of like Superman. Uh, she's sent here to flee a, a space war or star war if you will and basically is raised by a bamboo cutter and eventually she returns to space via a spaceship. And Help me so Fujiwara Michinaga. You're <laughs> <don't> only hope. <laughs> So, uh, not only did they come up with the first novel, but they also came up with the first science fiction novel, which is an interesting point, in fact. I don't know if you could necessarily consider it a science fiction novel, but it really seems to fit the concept to me. Of a science fiction story, at least. Right. Right.
2: Well, well, science for that time, anyway. Yeah, well, so, you know, someone coming yeah, down certainly. from
1: space, uh, fleeing, fleeing, uh, fleeing space in a maybe a little pod or something, I believe in this case it was a... Uh, well, she shows up in, in, in a bamboo stalk. Yeah. yeah, she she came down in a in a bamboo stalk, kind of like uh, Superman came down in a in a rocket ship. Rocket yeah. ship, yeah. <laughs> it's almost the same. Almost the same. I, I bet that's where Action Comics got the idea for from. Siegel and Shuster. That's okay because they stole half of Star Wars from Japanese
2: history, so why not?
3: <laughs> we had mentioned earlier about the decline in um, in the court's reliance upon Chinese models, um, and in uh, in eight ninety four the the Kentoshi, the imperial, imperially sponsored embassies to Tang China, were abolished. And as we said, the dynasty fell in 907. Um, but that does not mean that there stopped, that there ceased being contact between Japan and China. Right. And so, two very important figures from the Heian period who did travel to China and brought back to Japan a great wealth of uh, artistic and, and cultural and um, other, imp- uh, and, and especially religi- um, religious, religious. What do you want to say? Information, right? Um, were uh, Saicho and Kukai, the founders of uh, Tendai and Shingon Buddhism,
2: right? Um, Saicho had originally studied down in uh, Nara, uh, as that was the center of Buddhism in Japan at the time, and w- was really disenchanted with the way it, with the focus of uh, Nara Buddhism. So he actually left and founded a small temple on uh, Mount Hiei. Uh, in 788, which eventually becomes the Enryakuji, it, it's interesting to note that he founds it before the move to Kyoto. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason it becomes important is because once the once the capital is built at Heiankyo, Mount Hiei, uh, which is in the northeast northeast of the city, holds the Position uh, in Chinese geomancy, or the the way that uh, geography relates to feng shui. Fun, yeah, feng shui. Um, but essentially, that's known as uh, the demon gate mm-hmm. in uh, Chinese geomancy. That direction. Uh, so Mount Hiei is there, or as in basically blocking the entry of demons into the city. Uh, if according to this belief system, uh, so the Enno actually actually uh, becomes very powerful symbol and of this It becomes a very
3: important site for defending the capital from right, uh, from, that, from, right.
2: So, from, from evil so, influences or, right so yeah. once once the capital is established there it becomes very Im- important and ends up wielding quite a lot of power through the, throughout the Heian and into. Uh, later periods because of of the prestige it gets from holding this geographic position Travis mentioned that he founded the Tendai sect in Japan Uh, when he went to China he studied at uh, a temple that in Tiantai right uh and that's where you know the the Japanese reading of that is Tendai, that focused on this was actually a, an, a almost Protestant sect within China because they rejected a lot of the teachings that were coming out of the more mainstream sects in from India, and that's what attracted him to this because it it rejected a lot of the things that he disliked about the sects uh, that were being taught in the in the Nada area, so he takes it back and
1: becomes kind of the forefather of this. Uh, movement in Japan. Has anyone here actually been to uh, the Endekuji Temple's complex on Mount Ye? I no. have not. Uh, the reason I was asking is because I've actually been uh, up there, and it's a, a very imposing place uh, to get up there by bus now. Uh, it's a very sharp, steep hills, and you finally get up there, and it's a very, right. very wide, I think it's probably two or three square miles along the top of the mountain, uh, sheer, sheer drops and 60 to 80 degree drops all around it. So, you know, we'll probably, I'm sure we'll hit on this much later in a future history podcast, but uh, Nobunaga surrounded and burned the complex, as we all know, uh, and it just sort of staggers the mind because this is almost literally, literally a, a mountain temple, very steep wall, very difficult to get up, and it just sort of boggles the mind that someone could actually surround it and burn it. Well, that brings up an interesting point that we should probably
2: um, stress. The, the location that we talked about that gives it the uh, symbolic power also gives the the temple their political power uh, in the sense that they are the assigned guardians of the capital right. uh, in a religious sense, and and so through the course of the the Heian period, uh, especially you will see the monks at uh, the Enryakuji, and this is probably rather counter to Saicho's intentions when he founded it, but they they come down off the mountain, uh, bringing their omikoshi with the the spirit of the. Religious significance in that, and and this is kind of whenever they have an issue with the government or or whomever, they come down from the mountain, uh, set up in the middle of of a and and uh, demand make demands of the government to placate them, uh, and none of the secular warriors want to deal with them because they have their their uh, their temple spirit in this portable shrine that they carry, uh, giving them a religious power that. No mere warrior can can handle, uh, so to speak. So this this is a pattern that sets in the Han period, and so their interference in um, temporal affairs that eventually leads to what Chris described as you know no surrounding Mount Hiei and destroying it mm. essentially in uh, in the fifteen seventies.
3: And, and as we'll see in the very next podcast, I mean Enryakuji and Mi Meideira, which is also based on Mount Hiei. Yes, and being very involved—not just in standing around and making demands, but in actually fighting in the battles that the Right. the
2: Right, they become uh, warrior monks. Yeah, we'll, we'll, and, yeah I'll we'll get to it. We'll get into that in that. But yes, definitely. The other notable person to mention now uh, is, uh, as as Travis mentioned, is Kukai, who is posthumously known as Kobo Daishi, uh, and he also goes to China and brings back um, another a new sect at this time. Uh, called Shingon, uh, and he founds a complex on uh, Koya uh, to the south of Nara. It's also uh, important to note that both of these sects, while they were they were new, they also took care to integrate with the native uh, Shinto uh, mm-hmm. belief system to the point where Shinto deities were integrated into Buddhism as uh, manifestations of uh, Buddhist. They, they had Buddhist manifestations as bodhisattvas, so rather than conflict like we've seen in the past between Buddhism uh, the different Buddhist sects and, and the native religion of Shinto we see almost a reconciliation and an integration
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: bringing them together and this sets kind of the, the stage moving forward for how
1: uh, Japanese Buddhism and Shinto uh, interact Okay, and uh, that wraps up part one of our Heian period podcast. We'll be coming at you next week with the next section where we'll look at the rise of the warrior class. Okay, and uh, to reach us, you can get us at Twitter, at the Samurai Archives, also at SamuraiPodcast at gmail.com. And you can reach Mr. Joseph here at... JapaneseArchaeology.com. And if you want to reach Travis, you can reach him on Twitter as well.
3: Uh, yes, at, um, at symbol uh, I okay. can see that, <laughs> and and, and I'm
2: a luddite who doesn't do Twitter or any of that other garbage. So please contact them, and they'll get anything to me. Or or you could do the old-fashioned thing of going to the Samurai Archives
1: forum, uh, forum or even and, the Facebook page if you must. Yeah, and, uh, and, and reaching reaching there. Join the forum. Join the Facebook page. Give us a five-star review on on <laughs> iTunes. Yeah,
2: I, and, and I'll also say and make this request of our, our listeners. And we know you're out there because we see the, uh, the the download numbers. There's at we least know,
1: four of you. Yeah.
2: We, we know that there, there are at least four people besides the four of us listening to this. Um, at least downloading it and not listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> Please um, give us some feedback. Uh, send us questions. Give us some some feedback or some discussion. You know, we will if if we get some listener emails, some listener comments on Twitter, whatever it is, we will integrate it into the show, bring it up on the podcast, discuss it. And we want to you know make this a little more interactive, not just you listening to the four of us uh, blabbing well, right. on. So you know, if if there's points that you'd like to or or are items that we talk about that you'd like to hear more of in, in future shows, let us know. Uh, and we'll prepare something a little more in-depth on those. So, anyway, please give us feedback.
1: Alright, and that's, uh, that's it for this podcast, so stay tuned for next week. Peace out, homies. Bye-bye.